Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with author Deborah Larkin, who has written a tremendous book and is sort of the buzz of the town, the talk of the town in both Santa Barbara and Ventura because of this incredible story that she has written, which is part uh, memoir, uh, part sort of uh, uh, true crime, uh, nonfiction. And we're going to talk about all of that today because this story is so incredible and so personal to her. Deborah, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. And thanks for you. Thanks for inviting me on the um, on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, we talked uh, not too long ago regarding a, a story I did on you about the book. So right. now we can sort of share our great conversation with our, <laughs> our viewers and our listeners. You've written this story about this, this horrible crime that occurred. And I want to let you sort of tell the story. But we have this this kidnapping, this abduction, and then we have this homicide, and it takes place in Santa Barbara, in Ventura County, and your father was right there at the heart of it, reporting on the story, and you were, you were a little girl growing up watching all this, and then here you are, and now you're, you've written this book to sort of tell this story. So this is just so fascinating, but Deborah, talk to me, what is this book about, and what does it mean to you to write it? Okay. Um, well, uh, Olga Duncan was a, a young nurse who uh, worked uh, at Cottage Hospital, and she was married to an up-and-coming criminal defense attorney here in Santa Barbara by the name of Frank Duncan. Um, but soon after they got married, within um, weeks, really, uh, they, Frank started having problems with his mother. And uh, she was threatening to, to kill herself if he didn't move back with her and leave Olga. And dutiful son that Frank was, he left his wife in her apartment on Garden Street by herself and moved back um, to live with his mother. Although he continued to, to go and see Olga. Um, so uh, she was, Olga was seven months pregnant at the time. And on the night of November 17th, 1958, uh, she had invited two friends of hers from the hospital, two other nurses, to come and um, come over. And sh they had coffee and what they called hot buns. I'm not exactly sure what that is. And uh, Olga showed off some baby clothes that she'd been making for her unborn child. And the nurses' friends left about 11.10. And Olga was never seen alive again. Um, so... Um, as far as my story, uh, well, I'll, I'll go on a little farther. So the, the Santa Barbara police investigated it the first day and a half, maybe they thought this might be a runaway wife and that Frank was saying, well, she's doing it because she's mad at me because I'm, I'm living with my mother and uh, she's just taken off to, to, to give me a hard time. And um, so, but soon they started hearing from her friends and talking to her parents who lived in Canada that she was had been having trouble with her her mother-in-law so they tried they started investigating this really around the clock uh trying to find olga and uh they were developing some leads and they had a strong suspicion of who the who was the responsible for olga disappearing but they didn't have the kind of evidence they needed to go to court and um a lot of things happened but uh, a month later, on uh, December 21st, 1958, Olga's body was um, discovered buried in a shallow grave out on uh, Casitas Pass Road, 
and it was just six miles into Ventura County. And they, the police had evidence that um, Olga was murdered at the gravesite. So the whole case moved from Santa Barbara to Ventura. And um, my father, who'd been interested in doing a little reporting on it before when Olga was missing, because it became a, a big mystery all over um, uh, Ventura and Santa Barbara, and uh, he became the lead reporter for the, his newspaper, the Ventura County Star Free Press, to cover this case. And where I came in is um, I was a real curious you know, child. I, I was 10 years old. I liked Nancy Drew. I liked to watch Dragnet if I could talk my parents into letting me watch that. And uh, so my dad used to bring home other newspapers after work and, and read them at home. And he had brought he brought home a copy of the Santa Barbara News Press and left it open, folded open to the story, a little story that appeared on November 19th um, about Olga disappearing from her apartment. And she didn't show up for surgery that morning and the hospital sent somebody out to look for her. And uh, so I read that and it was, I don't know, it was, it was a pivotal moment for me. I was already kind of a anxious, worried little girl. Mm -hmm. And the idea that someone uh, would just vanish from their home in the middle of the night was 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 just as astonishing to me. And not only did I worry about Olga, but I also worried that um, who was next? Could this happen to me? And so I was very focused on it and kept pestering my father to get any any further news. And um, that's how I got involved. And then my father was really, he was quite a character. He was very well-liked and well-known in Ventura. He was outspoken and friendly and humorous. And um, he also had no filter. Um, somebody- and Sounds that's like what a I journalist. Said, <laughs> like maybe, yeah. As far as he was concerned, all the world, all the news of the world should be discussed at home, whether the children were there or not. And, um, it was funny because uh, I've heard from a number of different people since this book came out. And one of my father's colleagues uh, who is still living said that he laughed when he read that. Um, I said he had no filter because he said, um, this, this man said he had no filter in the newsroom either. We never knew what he was going to say. So that's how I became interested in it. And I, I learned, um, I learned a lot of details from my father. I read all of his newspaper articles every day. And I worried about Olga. I worried about when she was missing. And later I was very much wanting the criminals to be held accountable. I was a pretty hard-nosed little girl at the time. <laughs> I really wanted those people punished. Yeah, and I want to ask you about what it was like growing up the, the daughter of a journalist in a second. But I want to stay focused on the story. Okay. What an incredible situation you've got a you've got a mother-in-law who is jealous i guess mm -hmm. of yes. her son's yes, wife and 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 they're gonna have a baby and 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 then so much so i mean we know there's always often there's trouble with a spouse and the mother we we know that exists you know sometimes it's a comedy mm -hmm. line the mother-in-law so we know that exists but for somebody to actually go to all this trouble to to look for somebody to kidnap and kill and and as i understand it these two who did it weren't the first people that were asked that 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 right. uh, 
she was this mother-in-law was looking for other people to do it did you dive into the psychology she, she shopped all over santa barbara for killers that's the way my dad put it yeah <laughs> wow and that's... a lot of people knew <laughs> and nobody said anything can you imagine like knowing then, that is happening and not saying anything yes it, it, it olga's life could have been saved if somebody had just gone to the police or gone to olga but but nobody did uh, some of them said they didn't they all turned her down and they said well they couldn't believe that she was serious so they didn't go to the police or to olga and others were fa family members of clients who were um of frank's uh, criminal defense practice they were um some uh, one of them was somebody he represented and others were were wives and they were in an element in Santa Barbara that wasn't real anxious to go talk to the police. They didn't go looking for the police. So that's, they, they didn't say anything either. Now in, in the uh, description of a lovely girl, I, I mean, in the book jacket on the website, it talks mm -hmm. about how when there was the trial, there was sort of this uh, hint or this like allusion to an incestuous relationship. Yeah. And I'm wondering, did you dive all dive into it all? during your research, the psychology of what was happening with this mother-in-law and the son. And, and this seems extremely well, unusual. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't really know after all of the, all of the research, um, if there was an incestuous relationship with Frank and his mother. And even the, the prosecutor in, in Ventura who prosecuted the case, um, well, let me get back to this. He was the one that was sort of putting out a lot of, um, insinuations that that was going on. The only person they had that really said anything about it was Mrs. Uh, Duncan's, um, what I call sidekick, her 80 year old neighbor who was with her every step of the way. And she said that she believed that they lived as man and wife. Um, but, you know, I don't know. In, in his closing arguments to the, to the jury, uh, Gustafson, you know, put out something about Oh, well, they, they lived in an apartment where there was only one bed. And immediately Frank or Mrs. Duncan's defense attorney objected and said, wait a second, that that was cleared up. They, they never said that. And he's then he backed off and he said, Oh, okay, well, I misspoke. I'm sorry. He said, and I never meant to say that there was a sexual relationship between them. I just meant to say that there was a unusually close um, uh, relationship. And and I talked to someone I know who's a psychologist and asked her about some things. And she says that there's something in uh, psychology uh, that's not necessarily really well accepted. I believe it's called covert incest. And that's more where the parent makes the child the adult, the parent, and, and turns it all around. And the parent becomes very dependent on the child and the and, and so, you know, I don't know, that's a possibility also, but whether there was incestuous relationship between Frank and his mother, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the, the reader will have to decide for themselves. Right. And <laughs> these, two, the these two individuals who finally were hired to, to kill Olga, who were they? How, how were they found? How, how did the mother-in-law well, find them? And, and well, was there an amount they were going to get paid or what was the payoff? Well, uh, the, the two that were uh, the hired killers, the amateur hired killers, were Luis Moya and Augustine Valdonado. Mm. And they worked at the Tropical Cafe, which was, and bar, which was down on Lower State Street. And it was run by a woman and her husband, um, the Escobals. Mm. Um, and so Mr. Escobal had been represented by Frank 
uh, on a burglary and fencing charge, I believe. And Frank uh, got him um, a one-year sentence in county jail. So that's how Mrs. Duncan knew them. And the story that she told was that she was walking down State Street and, and was in front of the cafe and um, she uh, was pulled in by, I believe, Louis Moya. And they said, we want, uh, we're, we're, we want our money back. Mrs. Escobar wants her money back for the um, for what she paid Frank because he didn't get him off. So that was something that she made up. In reality, she had she went to the um, the cafe. She she happened to notice it when they'd been. She and Mrs. Short had been out, so she went in and talked to her and and, and introduced her and says, "Oh, you remember me? I'm Frank Duncan. I was my son was your your husband's um, lawyer." And so they got a cup of coffee and then she started asking Mrs. Escobar, well, I've got this problem. Do you happen to know anybody who could help me um, get rid of my daughter-in-law? And he, she said all sorts of terrible things. She used to make up all kinds of stories about Olga. And Mrs. Escobar said, well, um, why don't you come back tomorrow and, and I'll see them. I might know two guys who would be interested in doing it, interested in a job. And so that was Luis Moya and Augustine Baldonado. And they sort of worked part-time for Mrs. Duncan, um, just helping her clean up. And uh, they, I think they kind of got uh, paid in free beer at the bar. Mm. And uh, so that's how she knew them. And Mrs. Duncan, when she went back the next day, um, she told them what she wanted to have done. And they, they Luis Moya did all the talking. And uh, for, for those, for, uh, really, Baldonado just sort of followed along. Um, so they settled on a price, and Mrs. Duncan went up the um, block to Honor Rings at Cohen's uh, pawn shop and got $175 and came back and paid them that, which she had promised them $6,000, but that was the down payment. Mm. And um, then after Olga was gone, Louis Moya started calling her wanting the rest of the money. Well, she didn't have any money um, because Frank paid for everything. And so she had to, uh, you know, try to figure out a way to get some, some more money to pay them. You know, and that was, the, that was the unraveling of the case when she tried to do that. Okay, yeah. And, and obviously murder is horrible in, in right. all cases, but to kill a pregnant woman, you know, it feels as though that's that's like even more evil. Obviously, if she's seven months pregnant, these two know she's pregnant. Right. You know. Exactly. What? Um, and I can't believe she, I can't believe she wasn't screaming, "Don't hurt my baby!" Yeah. I believe every pregnant woman would be, you know, trying to protect their their belly and screaming, "Please don't hurt my baby!" And so the fact that for they those two insisted later that they had no idea she was pregnant, I find that hard to believe. Yeah, and. I know we want people to read your book, but what, what was the what was the actual moment where they abducted her? How, how did they do that? Where well, was she? Well, I'm willing to, you know, to talk about this because there's so many details. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so right. many other uh, so much so much more information in there that that. Yeah, they when those nurse friends left at uh, 1110 that night on the November 17th. Moyen Baldonado happened to be coming up just a few months later, or a few moments later, and uh, 
they came up to the apartment and they, they concocted this plan where Lewis went up and knocked on the door. Cause remember Frank wasn't living there. And he said, Oh, we have your husband downstairs. And he's had quite a lot to drink. And uh, he's got a lot of money on him, a lot of cash. And uh, I don't think he can make it up the stairs. So can you come down and, and help, help us get him up here? And Olga says, well, sure. Yeah. And she goes down and, um, Open, they opened the back door. Louis Moya was laying in the back seat, pretending to be Frank, kind of covered with his face covered. And she leaned in, and Louis Moya uh, hit her in the back of the head with a gun, pushed her in, and they took off with her. Wow. And as we talked about, and you know, for, for that other story that I did on you, they were kind of bumbling, right? They had some trouble on Cabrillo yes. Boulevard. Can you walk right. us through a little bit of how they well, ended up near Ojai? They didn't, they didn't even own a car okay. um, and they didn't own a gun. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, um, so they, they borrowed a car, they borrowed a gun. Mrs. Duncan, for some reason, bought them some black leather gloves. They had asked for that and uh, some tape, I think they had. So that car was just really in very bad shape. And it, it was running rough even when they got her. And so as they headed down from Garden, they went, they got down on um, uh, Cabrillo and the, the car was began to, sput- to sputter. And they, ta- they stopped in a parking lot um, on Cabrillo, um, partly because it was sputtering, but partly because Olga was screaming. I mean, they had, they had tried to hit her. I think they'd hit her with, on the head with a gun uh, numerous times and she still wasn't unconscious. She was screaming and um, they broke the gun and uh, they finally kind of got the, the, it going again. So the original plan, when they were supposed to take her down to, to Mexico, down to Tijuana, kill her there, bury her there. But they had to come up with plan B and they were on 101 and they took the road um, to Ojai. And uh, that's where they killed her and buried her out there. Mm-hmm. And we'll move on from these really macabre details here. Yeah. But- was she buried alive or was there some suggestion well, that she might've been or still alive? Yeah, they buried that's her? what, um, uh, when, uh, when, uh, Baldonado was the first to crack and when they were questioning him, um, they, and she talked about how, what they'd done to kill her. And I guess it was the investor that said, well, how, uh, how did you know she was dead? And he said, well, I, I took her pulse. I think she was, and that's what he said. I think she was dead. Mm-hmm. And then they just threw, threw in that hole and buried her. So, you know, your book covers that, but it obviously covers the trial um, as mm-hmm. well. And Big so, part of it is the trial. Is the trial. And so there, there's so much there. And I will get to that, a little, a little bit of that. But I want to ask you, you're 10 years old. So this yeah. happens when you're 10. So you're young, yes. your father's a journalist. And, and you're sort of learning about the world very bluntly mm-hmm. when he's talking right. at the kitchen table about what's <laughs> going on. And you were somebody who was very curious. You, you read right. mystery books and you were interested in this. You know, as a 10-year-old, can you take I took back? I took the stories of Olga's disappearance to school to share. The teacher wouldn't let me share them. She cut me off. But yeah, I was actually doing that too. I was well, obsessed. <laughs> this really yeah this was a really impactful so I want to ask you as a 10 year old um can you just talk about what that was like I mean you said you were concerned this could happen to you I mean right it's been terrifying for you well in 1958 you know that was a different more innocent unsophisticated era um for me and for the communities of Ventura and Santa Barbara and I think at least in my you know I was a child so I didn't know a lot of it but 
I, I sort of believe that these things only happen down in Los Angeles and not in our safe little communities. I thought that we were really pretty safe. Mm -hmm. So when this happened to Olga, you know, that was just a real jolt. And I think I, I mentioned this. I was very concerned with Olga. What I was worried, what, what was somebody doing to her? But I was very afraid for myself. And uh, this um, really, I think this case spurred a, a lifelong interest in true crime. And um, I would read those books, uh, you know, trying to understand about killers and what could I do to protect myself? I was particularly interested in the, the women who got away. You know, maybe I would need that information someday. So, yeah, I, I think that I was already an anxious kid. And this just really fed into that anxiety. And so, I still lock my doors and, you know, latch and bolt everything. <laughs> well, well, now in 2022, I mean, we have to, right? I mean, it's I know, well, I was ahead world. of my time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And and there's a lesson from all of this that you want people to take away. I mean, this isn't just a compelling reading about a horrible crime and then a court trial and then a verdict. Um, there's a lesson you want people to know and take away from this from, from for those who read that book. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Well, I think that uh, we focus women and he, readers of true crime like like me that of the, about the homicidal ma maniac, the serial killer, we, we worry about that. And um, the reality for women is that most women who are murdered are murdered by a family member. And in Olga's case, it was her mother-in-law. And also, I, I, I'd like people to take that away. And also that the crime didn't, Olga didn't need to be murdered. If those people in Santa Barbara who, uh, Mrs. Duncan had talked to about getting rid of her mother-in-law had spoken up that um, this wouldn't have happened. And I think that the lesson is when we know that somebody's in danger, uh, we need to speak up. I think we have an obligation to look out for each other and to just let that slide and think, oh, you know, she's probably not going to do it. Uh, at least talk to let the person that she's threatening know. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, how many times have we heard about these horrible things happening in a neighborhood and mm -hmm. people always knew that house was a weird house or they always walked by, but just kind of ignored it. And then all of a sudden they find out that you know someone's been kidnapped. Right. They've been living there and somebody escaped right. from there. And so it's so important to yeah. tell somebody and, if and you see something kind of weird. And I think these would have been credible uh, reports to the police because it wasn't just that these people oh thought she might do something they'd actually been offered money themselves oh, yeah. um to, to commit this crime so I, I believe that the the police would have at least investigated it um when somebody's being offered money to act as a hitman yeah and the other part of the story though which is really interesting to me as a as a journalist mm -hmm. is you deciding to write this story at this time in your life this was 10 when it happened and you you obviously have your own family and your own career and then you decide you want to write this book so can you talk about the decision right. to do that and how you went about yeah, it yeah i'd be happy to i want to say i guess i i think you asked the question but i didn't answer it uh -huh. about being the journalist my father also wrote this uh column uh -huh. 
Uh, a weekly column in the paper that was about all kinds of things, everything that he was interested in, and he was interested in everything. And he also wrote quite a few about um, our family. And I was quite embarrassed about that to, to be in the column. And he wrote, and sometimes my mother got mad at him because he would write about things that she did. And um, so, uh, but I, I, when I wrote this book, I was kind of combining that family Dave Barry type column about our family, but still everything linked to this, this murder investigation uh, intertwined that with the somewhat somewhat of a crime procedural um that uh that tells the, the crime and i did write it in in the genre that it is referred to now as as uh, creative nonfiction. so the book reads um more like a novel mm -hmm. um the way that i've written it and i can explain that so okay when did i decide to to write this uh, let, let me so just say night. though in defense of your father um, you know, we love that as journalists. Any opportunity we have, if you write a column, to let people know about our families. But yeah. also, the other side of that coin is sometimes those family <laughs> members don't want that attention. Right. And, and I address that at the end yeah. of the book. Oh, okay. I finally tell him I don't want to be that little girl in the column anymore. I'm growing up. So anyway, um, I had always thought that I wanted to be a writer. I thought I would write mysteries like maybe Nancy Drew or Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. And when I went away to college to University of California, Davis, I didn't, uh, and people would ask me uh, what you were going to major in, what do you want to do? I would say, oh, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because I, I thought that if I said I wanted to be a writer, that would have sort of a lofty goal. And, and that, um, so I, I, I said, I don't know what I want to uh, be, but I know I don't want to be a teacher. I said that, but at the end of when I graduated 1970s, just like a lot of other women with college educations, I went into uh, education and got a teaching credential. Mm -hmm. So I never, but I never really gave up on the idea of, of writing mysteries. I, that was something I wanted to do. And in education, I also, I wrote, I did do some writing. I wrote a lot of great grants and I got a lot of money for my school because I could kind of use my writing and storytelling skills to, to, fill the, to do the grant. But as soon as my youngest son left for college, I immediately enrolled in the uh, University of California at San Diego Extension Creative Writing class. And I took, you know, 30 some units mm. in that. And I kept trying at that time to fictionalize this story because this story stayed with me this whole time. I mean, I I thought about it and, and wondered about, you know, the motivation and I don't know, it just stuck with me. And I, and it was, a, it's a really interesting, compelling story. And so when I tried to fictionalize it, I eventually realized that, you know, this is really stranger than fiction. And that um, when I was taking classes and talking to the, the, the professors that uh, an editor at a publishing house might not think that a novel based on that story was believable. So I started to think about, okay, I would write true crime. And uh, I was in a writing, uh, uh, part of the San Diego Writers Inc. Uh, writing community here. And I went to uh, reading, reading critique groups. And in that process, um, I ended up realizing how that I could, and actually the, the leader of the groups suggested this, that I could combine 
um, what I was working on into a book about the crime. And what I had been doing is in this reading critique group, I had bring, been bringing in both personal essays about my dad and about our family, kind of in the style of his column. And then I had been writing more uh, of a, a crime procedural about the actual, the actual events of the investigation and the murder. And one night I brought in uh, an essay about how my father had this, his first power lawnmower was named the Mrs. D. And he had named it after uh, Mrs. Duncan, the murderer. And um, he was using it one day later, you know, long after he'd gotten it. And he was trying to get grass out from under the catcher thing there without turning off the lawnmower because it was really hard to start. Mm -hmm. And the Mrs. D cut off the ends of two of his fingers. And he wrote this. And so I wrote about this, this in the essay and how he was screaming that the lawnmower was a homicidal maniac. And he was, he was really a very dramatic. And so, you know, we started talking. They said, you could write um, what was going on with your family, this quirky family life. And the mother's a, my mother's a psychiatric social worker, and she was had her opinions about the case, and then combine it with chapters about what was going on um, with the investigation and the trial and everything. And that's how I ended up writing it in that way. Alternating chapters, and then you know, uh, mostly, yeah. But it. as the book progresses, you get more and more of the crime story. You know, the the momentum is building, and so. Uh, it's not so much alternating at once it gets halfway through more, yeah. more of the crime story. So I want to nerd out a little bit on the writing process here. Sure. What did you learn from taking those 30 plus units at um, San, UC San Diego? I think uh -huh. that, yeah, uh, UC San Diego. What, what did you learn? I mean, it, we everybody loves to write. They want to write. Mm -hmm. They think they know how to write. And, and there's exactly. it's really difficult. It's tough. But what did you learn and how did you apply that well, to your? novel mainly like i say i was i was writing this in creative nonfiction where i had scenes and dialogue and everything so in that that writing program i learned to write dialogue mm -hmm. i learned to to uh write scenes um to write descriptions um and just you know kind of the pace of the dialogue it it, it just so different than you know when i was writing all those grants yeah i was a great writer but um it's totally different. And, and I've seen in being in that reading critique group that some people will cycle through and they come and, and the first instinct is to just tell the story. It's all telling. It's just this happened and then this happened and then she did this and she did that. And people don't use what they call showing. Mm -hmm. they, they say, show, don't tell. And you show by having it in dialogue, by the actions people take in a scene. And so those kinds of things are what I learned uh, uh, and developed in the, the writing program at UCSD. And so you you chose to write this book uh, recently. Okay, so yes. um, mm -hmm. you did it after your youngest uh, son went to college. So you had this yes. newfound time. Did your father, was, was he ever able to see you or did, mm -hmm. did he know that you were going to start this process? No. What was that like? Um, well, he passed away in 1987 when I was, you know, that's, gosh, how long ago is that? It's 30 plus years ago yeah. and unexpectedly. And uh, so, no, he didn't. But I had all of his files. I had, and he talked about it long after that case ended. Um, he continued to talk about it. And he even 
uh, there's a quote in um, one of something that he wrote, maybe one of his columns that he said, you know, if, and he was about, I think it was, must've been the anniversary of, of one of, of the disappearance or, you know, something, uh, Olga's disappearance. And he said in there, you know, if I'm lucky enough to live another 20 years, I'll probably be boring young reporters in the newsroom with my tales about this remarkable, um, what he called it the remarkable Duncan case and this incredible trial that um, journalists from all over the country came. It was, it was not only a big story in Ventura and in Santa Barbara, it was a big story all across the country. I have uh, some Time Magazine uh, articles that were written. And uh, like I said, there were journalists from all over uh, and just descended on little, little Ventura. And, and so let's talk a little bit about that because you obviously you grew up uh, the daughter of a, a reporter, so mm-hmm. investigation, and you had that sort of interest already. But research is sort of in your blood. You watched right. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to write a book is much different than writing a newspaper article. A newspaper mm-hmm. article, you have to know enough and be accurate, and you give it to your editor and you publish. And if there's more to learn the next day, you do it again. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you have a few days, you know, you can work on a project. A book is very different. Can you talk about what kind of research did you do? Obviously you weren't able just to to do a search of newspaper articles. No, but I did do that. But um, it took me nine years to write the book and I was continuing to do research the whole time I was writing and I was, you know, I wasn't happy. I wanted this book to be the very best I could do. So anyway, the research, partly I had my dad's files. I had, um, I had all of his clippings of his articles and I had his discussions because he and I continued to talk about this case, you know, long after I was an adult. Um, then the trial transcripts were, were fantastic. Um, everybody taf- testified. The um, actual um, hired killers uh, got on the stand and uh, told in excruciating detail everything that they did during the, how they were hired, uh, the kid, that's how I know how they were kidnapped. And, and um, then what happened uh, when they took her up on Casitas Pass, um, all these witnesses testified uh, about what happened. And then uh, journalists, I don't think journalists do these things today. At least I don't, I don't notice them when I, I'm reading an article, but it seemed to be the thing to do. And, and I was uh, researching four different newspapers uh, to describe exactly what each witness was wearing. Sometimes mm-hmm. they gave us the hairstyle, um, their uh, demeanor on the stand. And uh, so that helped me really set the scenes. Uh, then in the, in the trial, then they also, uh, the DA and the defense attorney, especially the defense attorney, sometimes granted impromptu interviews with uh, reporters in, during the recess or before or after court. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and then the, in the newspaper articles, they filled in if there was some sort of drama going on in the courtroom, that didn't necessarily show up in the transcript, but I was filled in. Uh, by looking at the date of the transcript and the date of the, the articles, and then I could see what was going on in the courtroom. And honestly, those um, those transcripts were just riveting. The the testimony I, I felt as I was reading them that I was right there in the court the courtroom. A, a lot of it was very dramatic testimony. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, I was fortunate enough to um, 
have access to the, the district attorney, as I think I mentioned, was Roy Gustafson. And he wrote a memoir that was unpublished. He never found a publisher that was just about the Duncan case, as he called it, and uh, his thoughts about the trial and a little bit about his strategy and things that he worried about. So when I read that, that it just gave me insight to what he was thinking and what, what he was um, trying to do in the trial. So that was very helpful. Um, I had two letters that Olga wrote home to her parents that I found in the uh, exhibits in the appeal cases mm. um, that gave an idea of what Olga thought of the situation mm. a little bit. And then um, also, I, I know that I'm, I'm missing something else that was really um, a, good, a good resource. Oh, I had some interviews. The, the Santa Barbara detective, um, uh, Charlie Thompson, I had I picked up in the um, when I was reading the uh, uh, the newspaper articles that right there at the time that Olga disappeared, there was a little article that Charlie got suspended uh, mm. by his lieutenant for uh, calling him obscene words, mm. and um, and he was then had quite the role when he came back because he's the one that interviewed Mrs. Short that that was they were able to discover a lot about what happened. So anyway. Um, something was being said on Facebook and I was kind of following it. I grew up in Ventura page where they're talking about the Duncan case. And I saw this woman who responded that, oh, my, my father was Charlie Thompson and, and he was the one that broke the case. with me. And so I just uh, got in touch with her. And so, yeah, she didn't, she knew some things that her father had said, but the main thing she gave me is told me about Charlie's uh, personality and the mm. kinds of things that he said and thought. And so that was uh, helpful in, in writing, um, you know, a, a character that was more than just, you know, flat, flat, that just somebody I didn't know anything about. So yeah. that, that was helpful. Um, and getting and my own, I was there. What's that? I was there. I, there. I had the feel of 1950s mm. uh, living in, in, in Ventura. Yeah, and all of those court records, well, that was Ventura County, uh, you were able to, you had to go to the courthouse to find mm -hmm. those, or was anything online? Or, I mean, that must be, I mean, as somebody who's researched court records, that could be exhausting. Yeah. Right. Well, here's what happened. Um, by the time I, I called the DA's office to um, ask about getting copies of the transcripts, um, something else that had to already happened. And, and so there was a, there's a man that I, I know that went to my high school, he was a couple of years ahead of me, um, was a paper boy at the same time. And he was delivering uh, the newspapers. And like me, he became very interested in the case. And so as he was folding the papers before he delivered them on the bike, he would read uh, the stories. So he became very interested. So fast forward to 2000 about, uh, he works for a law firm that um, Roy Gustafson, the, the district attorney, had founded soon after he left the DA's office. And so they were closing down the law firm. And um, Bob was searching or was cleaning out the firm's law library. And up on the top shelf, he discovered uh, some bound transcripts gathering dust up there. Mm -hmm. And um, he opened them. And when he saw it, he, because of his paperboy experience and growing up in Ventura, he knew exactly what they were. So that's how 
um, the DA's office got them back again. And they were very grateful. They said they just thought they were lost. They didn't know what was happening to them. And it turns out uh, Roy took them over there when he was trying to write this memoir and then just never took them back because he apparently was worried that uh, maybe the, the DA's would, office would throw them out or something. But, but that's how those were available. And then when I called to, to get them a year or so after, a couple of years after Bob had found him, uh, the, was, the woman was, you know, at the time, she was called a secretary to the district attorney. And fortunately, she was very near retirement and she had known my dad and she was just very helpful in making sure that I got all those transcripts and uh, there was 5,000 pages and she ran them all off for me. Yeah. And did your dad, did he ever say someday I'm going to write a book about this? Um, and, and you, is any yes. part of this sort of your, he like, did. I want to but carry he died. Well, I, I say at the end of the book that my father died very unexpectedly, unexpectedly, and I never felt like I got to say goodbye. Mm. I was very upset about that. And so I feel like I wrote this um, kind of, this is my goodbye to my father, and that he, he said he wanted to write the book, but he never seemed to find the time. So I dedicated the book both to him and to Olga. Um, mm. So he was my inspiration for writing this uh, and, I'm and sure... i say go ahead sorry oh, yeah yeah well i don't want to you know i don't want to give away the last line so i won't say it anyway it was about my feelings about why i wrote the book we'll have to read it to find that out but i'm sure he's proud of you as a as a journalist to know that you know your child your daughter would carry on that tradition by memorializing the great work that he spent so much right. of his career on i'm sure that somewhere he's very he's very proud I... of what you've done I think he would be proud. And even though I wrote it in creative nonfiction, every detail that's, you know, about the case is absolutely the truth. And the way I could create scenes in that truthful dialogue is there was so much said in the trial transcripts that I could write um, the scenes that Another part of the, you know, as, as the story was told. Oops. Hello. Yeah, I, we lost each other just for a second there. Yeah. We're back. Mm -hmm. um, is anyone still around from this trial, from the yes. family? Um, who, who's still here that might have an interest in your book who was around um, then? Well, um, his, uh, the one person that is still alive all of those people that were the major parts of the of the of the story are all gone except for one person and that's frank duncan and he won't say anything if uh, he's been asked many times for an interview i called once and he simply says um that's all in the past i don't talk about it and, and that's the end of the story so, so uh, i don't know is, if he would frank is olga's husband this is the son Right. He's wow. his husband. He's probably around uh, 94 years old. Mm. Uh, but he, after the trial, he moved to Los Angeles. He had a successful law career, um, married at least twice, again, had an, a daughter. And then the uh, third marriage, I believe it was, uh, lasted for 40 years. Mm. And he was quite happy. But the, the same man 
that had discovered those trial transcripts uh, became a magistrate uh, judge in Los Angeles. And he saw Frank in his court a number of times. The last time when Frank was in his early 90s and he said, you know, he was always a very court, courtly is the word he, he would describe him as. And he said he seemed really sharp um, in court when he was, he just was helping an old client at an arraignment or something. But um, yeah, he continued to practice law for a long time. Mm, okay. Well, Deborah, this has been a, a you know, really fun conversation. And this book has been really popular. People are talking about it. What's, what's, before we wrap up, what's the reception been for you to be able to do these book signings and these events? Right. Um, how are I people know. receiving your work? Uh, really well. I mean, uh, of course, a lot of the people I hear from are um, people that I know, but yeah, especially uh, friends who grew up in Ventura, you know, because when I was writing a book, they say that authors kind of write for a certain audience. And I really wanted to get it right about for people who grew up in Ventura or Santa Barbara at that time, that they would be able to relate this to their childhood. Maybe they weren't obsessed with Olga Duncan, but that the things that I talk about that, that we did um, was something that they could identify. And I do think that I succeeded in that. Now I've seen on my author Facebook page, um, comments from some people that I, I don't know personally. And it, it seems to be receiving, you know, a really good reception. People are interested. It is, a, this is why it stuck with me and I wanted to write about it. It is a very interesting, compelling story. And I like to think that the family part, the memoir part that I've included that, you know, touches on this more innocent era before the dramatic changes of the 1960s uh, family life at that time, that that is um, of interest to a lot of people. And tell us where we can get the book. Where can people find this book? Well, you can go to any of your uh, local bookstores. If they don't have it in stock, they can always order it from you. You you can go to my website, uh, DeborahHoltLarkin.com, and there are links to uh, Simon Schuster's Distributing It. You can go on their link and it will get you lots of places. And then, of course, Amazon. Uh, Amazon has it uh, on their link. But yeah. you can pretty much get it wherever they sell books. And how cool you you uh, you, you you signed with a, a, a really legitimate big name publisher for your yeah. first work. That's amazing. Right. And that, there's a whole other story about. Um, should I keep going? But yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> a whole, yeah, I am a woman of a certain age. I had no platform. It wasn't like I had been a police detective or a journalist or anything for writing true crime. Um, and uh, I uh, also, I was told, and, you know, by them who know these things that uh, my book would never get picked up because it's a, a mixed genre. It's true crime and it is a, a memoir and that publishers really like uh, just especially for a first book, they want to be able to put it in a box to be able to sell it to fans of a certain genre. That's how they know how to market it. Mm-hmm. And then um, also, there's no getting around that I am older because, you know, all you have to do the math is I was 10 years old in 1958. Mm-hmm. And uh, publishers don't necessarily want to sign a, a, a someone who's an older author because they like to establish 
you know, long-term relationships with their authors that they will go on to sell multiple books. So there was a lot of things that um, made me feel, you know, that, but I, it, I honestly, it didn't really face me. I just felt that this was a story that I wanted to tell. And if, if I, 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 I rewrote it, I had many, many rewrote rights because I wanted it to be uh, not just good enough. I wanted it to be a really good book that I would want to read. And uh, I then, oh, Santa Barbara. I, so I've gone to a number of writers conferences. And so I came to the Santa Barbara writers conference, the last one they had in 19, in 2019, my son had urged me, he says, mom, it started in Santa Barbara. You should go to that writing conference and maybe you can find an agent there. And, uh, Sure enough, I, I did one of those uh, advanced readings, give them 10 pages, the agent talks to you. And you can hope that they might ask for another 10 pages. Sometimes they just critique what you've given them and told and tell you why it won't sell. But I sat down with uh, Charlotte Gosset and uh, she said, first thing, she said, okay, I loved your 10 pages, send me your whole manuscript. Wow. And the top of my head almost blew off. I thought <laughs> confetti came out. <laughs> I was, I really, I said, okay, you know, and then we worked together for a while um, to, you know, to resolve a few issues in pacing. And uh, then she signed me after um, we worked that out. And she pitched the book for a good seven or eight months. And, um, and that, that there was a little bit of a problem where it wasn't this straight rip from the headlines, blood and gore, true crime, mm -hmm. that publishers of that particular genre knew how to market. But Pegasus book and editor uh, Jessica Case. Um, she had worked with Charlotte before and she took the manuscript and uh, she loved it. She believed in the book and I saw and I, I was given I was offered a contract which I immediately signed, no questions asked as far as I was concerned. <laughs> and the rest is history. So, yeah, so that's how it happened. I can't wait for the movie. This sounds like it's going to be an incredible <laughs> movie one day. Um, well, uh, Deborah, thanks a lot for your time. I really enjoyed yeah. this conversation. And um, I hope people have the opportunity to read A Lovely Girl and follow your work uh, down the road. And thank you for your time. I hope so, too. Okay, well, thank you for having me, Joshua. Good night. Good night.